Daniel chapter six. And we're going to wrap this chapter up. Um, again, this is where we find Daniel in the lion's den. That's where that account is recorded for us in scripture. And we, uh, we talked about last week, uh, the kind of the threefold lessons to, to unpack. And I want to review those this morning by way of giving us some refreshing and a little bit of context. But we have, first of all, the circumstances surrounding Daniel being sentenced to death in the lion's den. And there's, there's the common antithesis uh, to God, the, the, the common persecu persecution of the people of faith. Uh, and it's a response to truth. It isn't anything personal, but it's their response to the condemnation they feel as they are presented with truth. Uh, and we experience that even today. And it really represents and is uh, symptomatic of a heart that is separated from God by sin. And so we have those uh, rulers and governors, everyone who colluded together to come up with this law that would condemn Daniel. Then we have the other two lessons are the faith of Daniel and the faithfulness of God to deliver Daniel. And those are kind of the two things to unpack this morning. We looked at the circumstances surrounding that a little bit, and all throughout that we saw the faithfulness of God and we saw Daniel's faith. But we're going to look at those more specifically today. So we're going to begin in verse 16. We read verse 16 last week, but we didn't, uh, we didn't get to it too heavily. So let's begin there. Verse 16 of Daniel chapter 6. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. So King Darius was certain of Daniel's character and of his piety. And I want to I want to point this out because when we look at Darius, there isn't necessarily a profession of faith. There isn't anything in there that would confirm that he is accepting of the living God or not. He could be, but there's there's nothing implicit that we can point to and say, yeah, for sure, we're going to see Darius in heaven. But what we do know for sure is that he likely saw the Lord, the living God, as one among many. That he was just part of a pantheon. We're going to come back to the idea here in, in a little while. Just part of a pantheon of gods that existed. Just another deity. And so what this reveals is that Darius is looking at Daniel. And he sees Daniel's faithfulness. He sees that he's... Uh, uh, worship that his worship of his god is consistent he recognizes something in daniel that the god whom thou service continually he will deliver thee and not only that he sees daniel's character he sees the piety the the continual worship that daniel has he's convinced that because of who daniel is and because of what daniel has done that he'll be spared yeah, that's a different perspective than we look at in Scripture. Daniel's faith is key and is part of this, but the faithfulness of God is a bigger part of it. 
So let's uh, turn with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, because from the believer's perspective, we understand that it isn't anything that we've done. It isn't anything that we have accomplished. Uh, this is something that God is, is doing. And so even, even Daniel had his ability to be faithful, to stand true, to in the face of hardship and persecution and, uh, and near certain death, to remain faithful, even that is grace that God has extended to him. If we look in Hebrews chapter 12, and we read that it says, let us have grace that we might serve you acceptably. So in Psalm 37, verse 39 and 40, it says, but the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. It's not a works thing. It's a trust thing. It's a faith application. And this is very clear. The salvation of the righteous is the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them. He shall deliver them. In Psalm 118, Psalm 118, verses 8 through 9, says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Daniel's not looking for Darius to deliver him. He's not looking for anything that man might do on his behalf. Though Darius tried, and we looked at that last week, he spent time, and he, uh, no, we're going to look at that yet this morning, excuse me. But the Lord is delivering him. And it isn't, as I said, it's not a response. It's a, well, we're going to unpack that more. Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Darius is convinced that because of who Daniel is, he's going to be spared. You and I, on the other hand, have a perspective as believers that because of who God is, we'll be delivered. His faithfulness, his uh, ability, his um, care and concern for his people, not because we merit it, not because we're uh, better than someone over there, but because he is faithful. Deliverance is going to happen. I mean, we'll just get that out here. We know the story. And, and I want to go back to Daniel chapter one for just a moment, because we talked about deliverance just a little bit. Daniel chapter one, verse 15. Uh, because here you'll remember Daniel and, his, and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego had uh, made the special request that we want to only eat the, the pulse, the vegetables and water, and, and we'll just be evaluated. And and they are found to be in better shape than everyone else. And so as we look at that, we, we see that deliverance comes in one of two forms. Uh, one, God removes you from the circumstance. Or two, God gives us grace in the circumstance. 
And we talked about that just a little bit, uh, that, that as God was delivering them, as he was uh, yeah, they're going to either be delivered from it or they're going to receive grace in the midst of it. Uh, it says in, in Daniel 1.15, at the end of the 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. And so in that instance, they received grace in the middle of it. They weren't removed from it. Their circumstance didn't change, but they were allowed to eat what they had requested. And God gave them an appearance and, and above and beyond he gave them grace in the midst of that. He, he, he delivered them in that, in that way. And here in the middle of Daniel and, and his worship of God and his continual uh, prayer to the Lord and, and his relationship with God and then being colluded against, we find deliverance is going to happen again one way or the other. The circumstance doesn't change. Here we are, the king commanded, and they put him in the lion's den. And it's going to be God's will about how he does this. He may choose to remove us from it, but he's going to do it for his glory. If that's how he does it, if he removes us, he's going to, for his glory, leave us in the midst of it and give us grace. Either way, his glory is what is being, is, is what is important. Not whether or not we're delivered. Okay. Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. They want to make sure that Daniel can't get out. They want to make sure that nobody's going to go sneak him out in the middle of the night. Uh, don't really think that that was probably an option. Uh, and as you get down to what happens to those who came up with this law and, and they're being thrown into the lion's den, I don't really think that that was even an option. They specifically says they didn't even hit the ground before they were consumed by the lions. As morbid as that may be, right? These lions are purposely in this pit. They're fed only when somebody goes in there or, or just enough to take care of them. They're purposefully hungry. It's a punishment. But they sealed this den with a stone. They put a stone on the top and they sealed it. And I'm convinced that this is a providence. This is something that God has brought about so that it was clear that only he could deliver them. That Daniel couldn't have somehow sneaked out in the middle, snuck out, sneaked out, whatever word it is, that he couldn't have gotten out in the middle of the night that he couldn't have been rescued by somebody. There's no way that when they show up in the morning that there is any question about whether or not he'd spent the entire night there. It's sealed. It wasn't just the king's seal, but it was the seal, the signet of the king and of his lords, those who had colluded to make this, this uh, law that would catch Daniel. They know what they're doing. They want to ensure that he is destroyed. So here is God sealing this tomb for providence sake so that it is clear who the deliverer is. And this is the, maybe the first time, but it isn't the only time we read about that happening. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. At this point in Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus has been crucified. He's been laid in the tomb. And what do they do? They cover the tomb with a stone. They roll the stone in front of it. And if we begin reading in verse 62 of Matthew 27. Now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, whilst he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. Okay, so they've come, they've colluded against Christ, they've crucified him, and then they come to Pilate and they say, we remember what Jesus said. He said that he would rise again the third day. And we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that everybody knows he's dead and that he's sealed in the tomb. Command, verse 64, command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead, so that the last error shall be worse than the first. You know, first of all, we have to consider that even if Jesus, even if the disciples came and took Jesus' body, so the body's missing, they can come and see the open tomb, but they've never seen Jesus again. People are going to be suspicious. And that isn't what happened, is it? Jesus, when he rose again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, appeared to as many as 500 at a time. There was a clear confirmation that he was raised from the dead. And they, and, but they want this seal. They want this providence. And, and I'm convinced that God allows this in his providence. Because nobody can get into this tomb. Nobody can do it without the certainty that Jesus was risen from the dead. And Pilate says unto them, you have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone in, in the same way that they've sealed it with the signet. They've somehow, whether they poured wax on it and, and, and marked it so that it was clear that if it, would, if it had been rolled away, but they've sealed it. They've made it sure and they put the guard there and they set a watch. It's as sure as it can be. In John chapter 19, and I just want to look at this because for us, it should be a very encouraging thing. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. And in John chapter 19, uh, what we see is Jesus on the cross. That is where we are at in the gospel. Jesus is on the cross. We see the things that are happening there. And beginning in verse 31, it says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross, on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So they're looking to speed up. We don't, during our feast and our preparation, looking forward to think we don't want to have this unsightly crucifixion happening over here. And we know that it speeds it up if you break their legs and they can't lift themselves up, they die more quickly. That's, that's as gruesome as it is, that's, that's exactly what they want. Verse 32, then, the, then came the soldiers, and they break the legs of the first and the other, which was crucified with him. Remember, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. But when they came to Jesus, verse 33, and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs, right? which is consistent with the prophetic. And that in, in uh, Psalm 24, 
here's Jesus, uh, a Psalm of David in, in, in a prophetic office, and he's there saying, listen, none of, I can tell all of my bones, they're, they're all in joint. They're, they're not broken. Consistent with the picture of the Passover lamb, that none of the bones should be broken. And here's Jesus, none of the bones broken, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And when he saw it, he bare record and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith is true that you might believe. We have this, this soldier and he comes and he spear, spears Jesus in the side and out comes blood and water which is a very clear picture of the pericardium of the heart being filled. There, there's a definite medical certainty about what happened. Jesus was dead long before that, uh, but even then, knowing that he was speared in the heart, there was a certainty of death. And that's the big point for you and I as we're looking at this. There's this certainty of death. God didn't leave it to chance. He didn't leave it somehow uncertain or any room for equivocation or, or, he, or doubt. He made certain that we all understood that Jesus Christ himself did come and that he did offer himself, that he gave his life on our behalf. And it wasn't a swooning and it wasn't a fainting and it wasn't a, a rest, restorative effect of the cool tomb or anything like that. Jesus was dead. He was, in fact, dead. And it says in verse 36 of John 19, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. This accuracy in scripture, this, this self-confirmation of truth. And so they take the certainly dead Messiah down from the cross and they place him in the tomb. And because they're worried that he may somehow be stolen or that somehow the disciples may try to uh, take the body and therefore proliferate a lie from their perspective, they seal the tomb. And I'm convinced that in the same way that it's a providence that the, tomb, that the den of lions was sealed that the tomb of Jesus Christ was sealed. Nobody could go in. Nobody could change anything. Jesus was in there, and they put him in there only for the simple fact that he was, in fact, dead. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. And I want to start in verse as we get through the first couple of verses there, we find this statement in the first verse, I declare unto you the gospel. And it's a very simple proclamation. Uh, and, and he says, by which you are saved. And he says this, I'm going to begin in verse three, for I delivered unto you, first of all, which also received how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Okay, that's the first point of the gospel, that Christ died was completely dead for our sins. Just as the Passover lamb was the offering that took away sin, just as, this is the same picture. This is the atonement offering was that which was taken in and the blood sprinkled there on the mercy seat 
by the high priest once a year. Jesus is that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. Okay, so he was dead and he was buried, it says in verse 4. He was buried, he was put in the tomb. He was sealed in the tomb and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Oh, excuse me, I skipped some. Verse 5, when he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain until the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me, Paul speaking of himself, as of one born out of due time. So we have this certainty of his death, the providence of God to seal the tomb and make it sure that nobody could steal or counterfeit the resurrection. Only God could raise somebody from the dead. And here is Jesus walking around, and, and certainly so, not because his disciples have hidden him, the body away and are claiming that he's alive, but because he himself in the flesh stands before them. 501 to the apostles, to Cephas or Peter over here, to James over there, last of all to Paul. And what do they see as we read in the Gospels when he appears to them? We see a physical body. We see the spear wound in his side and the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. It is, in fact, Jesus Christ who was crucified, now risen from the dead, as we read in Romans chapter 6, by the glory of the Father. having offered everything, now sitting at the right hand of God as our mediator. God took great pains to clarify that there was no way, shape, or form that any of this could be counterfeited, no way, shape, or form that any of it could be a hoax. He providentially sealed the tomb and did everything that was necessary to ensure that the body couldn't be taken. Just as with Daniel, they providentially made sure that this would happen so that the purpose might not change concerning Daniel. And it isn't that Jesus Christ had any thoughts or plans to evade or to escape the will of the Father and being the offering and the sacrifice for sin. But just as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the 100% accuracy and that being something we should demand in regard to the standard of a prophet, so that there's no question about the authenticity of the gospel or, or the message that God has sent. We have this purpose of God, this providence of everything that is established, so that there's no question about its supernatural, about its divine origin. In Daniel chapter 6, verses 18 through 19, we, we, we read that as Daniel is put into the lion's den, as everything is sealed, as everything is protected so that nothing can change concerning Daniel, it says in verse 18, then the king went to his palace and he passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. It seems that Darius 
escorted Daniel to the lion's den, which he wouldn't have had to have done. He's the king. But it seems that there's some evidence that perhaps they were more than just acquaintances or, or you know, maybe they were friends. I don't know that we know that with certainty. So I don't want to overstate it, but there seems maybe there was something. He did go to the lion's den. He did spend a, a lot of time trying to deliver Daniel. And then while he's here, uh, that evening, that night, he passed the night fasting. He didn't eat. It says that there was no music. There was no instruments. There, and ultimately, that's, it's a bigger statement. There was no entertainment. He purposefully separated himself. And then early in the morning, the next day, he rushed to the lion's den first thing. He wanted to see what had happened, what had transpired. Okay? Like I said, we don't know with certainty but there's some indication that maybe there's a relationship greater than king and advisor between Daniel and Darius. They could have been friends. And as he comes to the lion's den, as Darius gets there, we read in verse 20, when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice. And I think that he's lamenting, that, that means this mournful, this sad voice, because I think there's an expectation that Daniel didn't make it. He cries with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? And I think it's a very poignant question. Is the God whom you serve able to deliver you from the lions? As I said, Darius's interpretation of the living God was simply a par part of a pantheon of pagan deities. He was just another God. And this happened to be the one that Daniel served. Was your God able to deliver you? And the reason that I think he asked this is because if he is familiar with the idolatry and the idols and those things that are there, they're without ability to deliver. And at best, their, their ability is limited. You remember when Jacob, let's see, Jacob left uh, his father-in-law Laban and he took his two wives and, and they're headed back to the promised land. And Laban begins to pursue after this troop of people that's left with Jacob because somebody stole his gods, it says. His idols, somebody took them from him. And it was Rachel and she hid them and Anyway, it's, it's a problem. And it always made me think how powerless, how insignificant is your God if he can be stolen, if he can be taken from you, if he can be displaced and you have to go rescue him. Idols without ability. Here's the thing. This is as we look at our culture and our society today, and I want to and I want to unpack this just a little bit, right? Darius is looking at gods who have an origin story. Okay, think, and I'm going to put this in a Marvel context because it works. That's that's culture and society today. There's an origin story. They're created. Even if they are a god like, like, uh, like Thor, they're created. They're limited. 
they're spurious. I mean, they're, they're morally subjective. On and on and on. They're not a God that we would read about in Scripture. They're not the living God. There's something less. So when Darius comes and says, is your God able to deliver you? He's taking the idea that the world has of what a God is, what we want them to be, and he's applying that. We serve a different God. We serve the living God. And he's revealed himself to be vastly different from any ideal that the world holds of what a God is. I want to begin and look at this for just a moment. Let's look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The first introduction we have to the God of the Bible is in the first verse, in the first words of the Bible, and it presupposes that he exists. There's no reason or explanation about where he came from. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. This Bible that we're reading in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is his revelation of himself. He doesn't have to explain where he came from or anything like that. He was existent. And as we get into uh, further into the scripture in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters the burning bush. If you'll turn there with me, Exodus chapter 3. Moses encounters a burning bush. And part of the complaint that he has is that who am I going to tell them sent me? Moses wants to know the name of God so that when he goes to Egypt and he says, hey, Israel, fellow Hebrews, this is, I'm the guy that's supposed to deliver you. They're, he says, they're going to ask me, who sent you? And God responds to him in verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Now, the word I am, we translate it, it gets transliterated either Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, the Jews in their zeal to honor the name of God, remove the vow. So it's kind of lost as far as what it would be. But it means to be. I mean, in its very simplest form, it means to be, to be existent, uncreated, just to be. There is no origin story with God. He's eternally existent from eternity past to eternity future. Look with me in Psalm 90 for a moment. Psalm 90, let's read verse 2. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. From eternity past to eternity future, from before time or outside time even, thou art God. Uncreated. 
Isaiah 44, verse 6, if you'll turn there with me. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. The self-existing creator of the universe, who in the beginning created everything, spoke it into existence, who revealed himself as his name to be I am, that I exist to be, says that I am the Lord and there is no one else. I am the first and the last. And there is no God beside me. Not one of many, but one and the only. And as we look at that first and last, it should be, should peak in our minds some things that we read about in the book of Revelation. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. But in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, as it said, the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, and this is their proclamation, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. When we look at the, the difference between God who, who is uncreated, who has always existed, who spoke everything into existence, versus what the world looks at God. And they say, listen, he's, he came from somewhere. He began somewhere. That we, we see a drastic difference. Not only does he always existed, but he is morally, he, he's not morally subjective. He is truth. He is love. He has revealed himself to us in his characteristics, in his attributes, because those are the things that we can wrap our minds around. It helps us to know who he is and what he's like. But from Genesis to Revelation, we have a very consistent picture, not a, not a changing picture, not one that is different at this portion of history than another portion of history. We also don't find a God who is, who is subject to his creation and somehow restrained or, or forced to do things that he wouldn't want to or, or doesn't want to do. He is the creator of the universe. He is not subject to it. He is over all of it as sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's self-existent. He's eternal. He's unchanging. In Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah 32, I want to read two verses. Jeremiah 32, I want to read verse 17 and verse 27. In verse 17, we have Jeremiah the prophet speaking, and he says, Ah, Lord God, 
Behold, there thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. And in verse 27, we have a response from God. The Lord, I'm going to begin in verse 26. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? No, there isn't. But when we look at and we compare that statement with what the world looks at and what they expect from God, there's a difference. There are those things that are too hard for him or those things where he is spurious and, and somehow untrustworthy, which isn't true. God is able. And for you and I as believers, that should bring with it some certainty. Here is Daniel, and he's in this lion's den put there. I remember as a kid seeing him lower down on a rope, but I have much more of the opinion he was probably thrown down into the pit uh, and not lowered down gently. And here he is. And the question arises, is your God able? Is your God able? And the world would ask us the same question. Is your God able to deliver you from this or to deliver you from that or to uh, be strong on your behalf over here or, or, or over there? And as we've been talking and as we've been pointing toward being unashamed of the gospel, of standing firm in the truth that God has given us, we have to conclude, yes, he is. And that's why I put us in remembrance that there's more than one way in which God may deliver us. And it's according to his glory. It's according to his will, not the way I think it should be, not the way the world over here thinks it should be, but he is going to deliver us in accordance with what he wants to accomplish. So for as believers, we have this assurance and this confidence that God is able. And not only is he able, but he is for us and not against us. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12, I'm going to begin in verse 8, and we're going to end in verse 12. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, be not, there, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be, but be thou the partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who had saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given unto us, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher, an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. 
He says, just pause there for a moment. Here is Paul exhorting Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And he says, this is what it's all about. God who he's made manifest, he's revealed in Jesus Christ, the abolishing of death, the conquering of death, and the giving of eternal life. Okay, that's all in verse 10. That, that, that is the purpose. And why did that need to happen? Because death came by sin, Romans chapter 5. And we're looking for that deliverance. We're looking for the, the, the salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the removal of sin, not just simply the covering of sin. And this is all manifest in Jesus Christ. And he says, I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So here's Paul, and he's talking about suffering on behalf of the gospel and not being ashamed as a result of that. The world would look and say, well, listen, you're not being delivered, quote unquote, in the means that we think your God should be delivering you. Therefore, there's a problem with your God. That's how they interpret it. Yet here is Paul and he says, listen, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this hardship, I am not ashamed. I, for this cause, for the reason of the furtherance of the gospel, God has left me in the midst of this. He has given me grace in the midst of that. That is his method of deliverance here so that the gospel would be further. And I know whom I have believed. There's a certainty that he knows that he, the, the God that he has believed is the true and living God. And that as a result of that, he is able to keep everything that he's committed to him against that day. Whether it's life, whether it's possessions, whether it's family, whether it's time, God is able to keep it. There is no loss as a result. And Paul has this great confidence in that truth. In Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 through 27, says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Now remember, this is this is Jesus Christ. And as we get into the book of Hebrews, and we're this chapter is specifically talking about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It introduces this chapter with Melchizedek, who is a, a priest of the Most High God, all the way back with Abraham. You remember that and um, do a little study there on your own. But he says that he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. To the uttermost, completely. There isn't something left or something hanging out there. He's able to save them to the uttermost, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, 
undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily as those high priests, the ones in the Old Testament, the ones that God uses an illustration of the high priest Jesus Christ, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men, uh, the, for the law makes men high priests which have infirmity. But the word, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't accomplish that. There's no way, no, no strength within us, no merit within us that would bring about the favor of God on, as a result. The soul that sins shall die. And there is none righteous, no, not one. Yet God in his love towards us and his ability to remain just and the justifier, Romans chapter 3, said, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to be the substitute, to be the offering. Not only is he the offering, he is the priest who gives the offering. And because with certainty he laid down his life, shed his blood on our behalf, experienced death as a result of sin, we can be made his righteousness because he was made sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And when he was raised from the dead... And I'm going to phrase it this way, maybe an imperfect phrasing, and entered into the office of priest, which is, like I said, it may be imperfect. He was always in the priestly office, but enters into that office and, and now lives to make intercession on our behalf. He didn't have to come and offer multiple sacrifices. He himself was pure and righteous and holy, didn't have to be forgiven himself. But as it says, this he did once when he offered up himself. When the offering that Jesus brought was his flesh and his blood. God who is able to secure those things that we've entrusted to. Him. God who is able to save us, not just a little bit, to the uttermost. With certainty and confidence that we, are not, that we cannot be lost. In Jude chapter 1, right before the book of Revelation, Jude chapter 1, which is really about false teachers and, and those who would come in and, and look to usurp the authority of Scripture and replace, the, replace that authority with their own authority. Jude chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, in the benediction as he's concluding in that doxology, he says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. He that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You nor I can do that. The gods that the that, that people ascribe to or that they make after their own image or that they desire or that, that, that Hollywood puts out there cannot do that. They can't present us faultless before the presence of their glory. They can't keep us from falling. Yet Jesus Christ can 
to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. The certainty that we have in a God who is able to fulfill things, they're able to do things above and beyond anything that we could think or imagine. Now, this isn't a wish type of faith. This isn't a trust that we have in a God, and I wish that God could do this for me, or I hope in a wishy-washy sense that he could do that for me, but this is a sure faith. This is the certainty of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And while it may use those words, and we've ascribed different meanings to them today, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things that are hoped for. When I hope in that, that there is a donut in the box back there with chocolate frosting and cream in the middle. When I hope that, and I don't know if there is or not, but that's just what sounds really good today. And I go back there and I, and I grab that donut that I've been hoping for, the very one with chocolate and cream inside, that is substance, right? It's real, here it is. I'm touching it and I'm, taste, I'm tasting it and it's good. That's substance. We don't always put our hands upon the substance. Faith is the substance of those things. Here's Daniel. He's in the lion's den. And as we're going to get to here in just a moment, as we begin to look at the faith of Daniel, there is substance there. He knows with certainty that God is able. He's not hoping, and boy, I sure hope God can get me out of this pickle. This is, this is a real, real bad thing. He knows that he can. And he knows that however that happens is for his glory, for the best. And it is also the evidence of things that are not seen. The evidence of things that are not seen. Right? When I look back here and I see chocolate on fingertips, I'm like, oh, maybe there was a chocolate donut. There's evidence. And I don't see it, but I see the evidence of it. Okay? Our faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things that are not seen. It's that which people look at and they see, just as Daniel, who is faced with certain death, yet chose to honor God in everything that he did. His faith was an evidence of the reality of who God is and his ability to deliver him. We serve a God who is able, not a God who has an origin story. Darius asks the question, is your God able to deliver thee? Because he's looking at God from a different perspective. We're looking at God from the certainty of who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. And Daniel's response in verse 22 of Daniel chapter 6, he says... He beginning in verse 21, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths that they have no, not hurt me. 
For as much as before him, innocency was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Okay. God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths. They have not hurt me. He answers the king. Not only is he able, he was more than able. For as much as before him, innocency was found in me. Daniel was innocent before God and the king. He hadn't in any way, shape, or form denied God, even though he was faced with death. He was innocent before God. And Daniel, excuse me, Acts 24, not Daniel, Acts 24. Verse 16, Paul writing here, he says, and herein do I exercise myself. You know, just let that sink in. This is something that he is practicing, that he is engaged in. I exercise myself in this thing. To have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, this is Paul writing. This is Paul. This is what he is saying. And in this context, he's talking about hope toward God, verse 15, uh, which, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and, the, and of the unjust. And he says, and I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. So Paul wants to make sure, and he he puts forth effort to make sure that he keeps a, a clear conscience before God. He's acknowledging of his sinfulness, right? And this is James 1, 1, 9. He confesses his sin before God. Not only does he do that, but he's living in a way to the best of his, to, to, he's living as he can by the grace of God in a way that is consistent with who God is, to represent, to not somehow confuse the message. And if he does somehow confuse the message, because he's looking to keep that account short with not only God, but with men, when he makes confession, it may have to be to God and to man. Daniel was innocent before the king, before God, and before the king. Even though he had broken the law, he had done no harm to Darius. He hadn't done anything. And he submitted first to the, to the king of kings and the lord of lords, uh, who, who, who ultimately Darius is subject to. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it, and we're going to talk about two things here, and we're going to use two separate verses to discuss this. But in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, beginning in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. 
Okay, there. This is, in some respects, this is a statement about sanctification, that here we are in Christ, because that's the audience. Paul is here writing to Titus, who is his son in the faith. Okay? He's not talking to him about needing to to better himself so that he'd be acceptable to God. He's saying, listen, that the grace of God that we have received teaches us that we need to live in accordance, that we walk in obedience to what God has called us to. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, and this is how we ought to live, that we deny ungodliness, right? Paul would write in Romans chapter six, that whatsoever we yield ourselves to, we become a slave to it whether it's to sin or whether it's to God. And ultimately, in that same chapter in the book of Romans, he talks about that we are, by, he gives thanks that we are now servants, slaves to God. So we're not going to yield ourselves. We're going to deny ourselves ungodliness and worldly lust. And the way we're going to live is soberly. We're going to think rightly about things. We're going to think about things the same way God thinks about them. righteously and godly in this present world. In other words, we're going to reflect our Savior to the world around us in the way that we live. This is very consistent with, with, with what Jesus commanded. This is really consistent throughout all of the New Testament. But consider the audience and the context. If we take it out of context, we can make a case, well, gee, we have to live this way. This is how it's going to be. But we put it in its context, we have a different understanding. This isn't works to salvation. This is fruits and reciprocation of love after salvation. We're looking for, verse 13, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Those who would be desirous to walk in obedience to him. That's sanctification. We're growing in that. We're not going to be that perfect representation of Jesus Christ the day after we've been born again. We've spent an entire lifetime walking in the lusts of our flesh. And it's our predisposed nature. We're going to have some struggles with it. We're not always going to be an accurate representation. We're going to grow in it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Because on the other side of that coin, we have justification. Hebrews chapter 10, let's look at verse 22. And Hebrews chapter 10 is, is ultimately, it begins in the first verse, it says the law having a shadow or a pattern, a representation of good things to come, and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. Okay, so if I just unpack that verse, that first verse, it says that we cannot be made perfect by keeping the law. Works is not going to cut it. But as we jump down to verse 22, and here we are talking about the, 
the offering, the pattern that has come and the sacrifices and the offerings, the priesthood of Jesus Christ being reiterated here, says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, right? And the substance and the, the evidence of those things that we haven't, that we don't see, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? This is justification. This is the decree of God that we are righteous in Jesus Christ. That we are not just covered, not just our sins covered, but our sins removed from us. We draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Daniel had full assurance of faith. You can put me in the lion's den and God's will will be done. Whatever that needs to be, whatever method of deliverance needs to happen, or whether I die for his glory, whatever his will be done, not mine. But we have this assurance that we can come to God, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, right? And that's, that's, that's a reference to the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat. That is, the uh, sin offering was brought in and that blood was sprinkled. It was the forgiveness of that sin. We have a conscience, it says, or excuse me, our hearts sprinkled. The blood has covered that. And our bodies are washed with pure water. It's metaphorical, but it's talking about the purity, the, the righteous declaration, our justification that we've received in Jesus Christ. A clear conscience. One that knows with certainty that I have trusted in Christ, and as a result of that, and of that alone, have been declared righteous. And that even if I may fail from time to time, in the process of life, God is molding me into the image of his son, that by his grace, I will reflect, reflect him better tomorrow than I do today. And for you and I as believers, there is peace, there is tranquility, if I can say it that way, in faith, because God is certain. Because God is certain. Isaiah 26, 3, thou shalt keep him in perfect peace. He whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusts in thee. He's not trusting in himself. He's not trusting in his own effort. He's not trusting in his works. He's trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Darius responds to, to Daniel in verse 23. Then the king was exceeding glad for him and commanded they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. He believed in his God because he believed in God. He was preserved. I want to look at a couple of a couple of things here. First in Psalm 146. Psalm 146. 
what we want to make sure of is that, first of all, we don't take this somehow out of context and make it a name it and claim it kind of a thing that God is a genie and I, and I believe that he'll give me this and so therefore I'll have it. It's not what is being discussed here. Psalm 146 verses 3 through 6 says, put your trust, put not your trust in princes nor in the son of man in whom there is no hope. His breath goes forth, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is there, and all therein is, which keepeth true forever. Our confidence isn't in anything, or belief isn't in any method of deliverance other than God himself. In 2 Chronicles, we find Jehoshaphat. Okay, he's king uh, of Judah. If you want to turn there with me, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. He's king of Judah. And he's faced with uh, three armies that have gathered against, uh, against him. Uh, there we go. We have the Ammonites, the Moabites. Uh, and the people of Seir, uh, which is a region there, uh, in, in that area, region in that area. And uh, let's begin in verse 1 in Second Chronicles chapter 20. It says, it came to pass, also this... After this also, that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and them which were, uh, and them which other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There comes a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, there be in uh, Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Okay, so the first thing that's happening, there, there's all this, this army, and Jehoshaphat is fearful because it's a great army, something that they wouldn't be able to defeat. And they seek the Lord. They seek the Lord. Jump with me down to verse 14. Well, just by way of... Uh, interesting things if you want we have ammon we have moab and we have seir if you want to put down like next to verse 10 deuteronomy chapter 2 verses 4 through 5 verse 9 and verse 19 that'll tell you why we're finding those particular people okay seir those are the descendants of esau and god said when they went into the land you're not getting that land i gave that to esau same with the ammonites and the moabites you're not getting their land. And he tells them that in Deuteronomy chapter two. So that's the reason they're still here. That's why we find them. But they're coming against God's people. And as we jump down into verse 14, then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, hearken ye all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat, 
Thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid, nor dismayed by the reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And that's the first point I want to make here. The, the, the right the, Here is Daniel, and he's in the lion's den, and he's dropped down there. It isn't his battle. They came against Daniel, yes, but ultimately they were coming against God. They were coming against who, those that he had established as a means to get at him. And we may experience the same hurt. We may experience the same uh, thing against us. But, but ultimately, the battle is not yours. The battle is God's. And he says this to him tomorrow, verse 16, go you down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz. And you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Daniel could have protested. He could have cried at his innocency. He could have made the case for all the reasons why he shouldn't be put into this, it was an unjust law, so on and so forth. But it wasn't his battle. He didn't need to fight it. And as you and I stand and, and we trust in the Lord, and that's, that's what we're getting to, right? We're trusting in the Lord that he is for us, therefore who can be against us? We don't have to fight the battle. It's his battle. We're going to stand still and we're going to see the salvation of the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that we do absolutely nothing. We may, we, we may have things that we're going to engage in, that we're going to do, or that we're going to uh, be used of God to accomplish in the midst of that. But if God chooses to use us as, a, as a, an instrument in his hands, then he chooses to use as an instrument in his hands. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face, verse 18, to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites... <clears throat> And the children of the Kohathites and the children of Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Verse 20, and they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness. And as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. The command of the king and what they were told to do was to believe in the Lord. Not to trust in their military might, not to trust in the sword beside them, not to trust in that they were faster than the guy next to them. He told them to believe in the Lord. 
Daniel was delivered because he trusted in the Lord because of his belief. In Hebrews chapter 11, is it talks about the, the faith of those who were who have gone before, because that's ultimately what it is, is a means of encouragement to you and I that we can trust in the Lord. That we can believe that, that as we read earlier in 2 Timothy, that whatever we've entrusted to him, he will keep it until that day. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 through 40. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel and of the prophets. And what did they accomplish? Through faith, by belief in, the, in God, who through faith subdued kingdoms, brought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Very specific reference to Daniel. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women's received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, and these all having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. We have this description. Here is, here is, Jehoshaphat faced with an impossible army that he cannot defeat. And he says, believe in the Lord, believe in his prophets. See, they have spoken to us. God is going to fight for us. We do not have to fight. This is what I want you to do. Go out and we're going to praise the Lord. And then here, as we look in the book of Hebrews and, and just in this hall of faith in chapter 11, we find out that, that kingdoms were subdued, that they wrought righteousness, that they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, so on and so forth. And even in the midst of that, it says that some of them were slain, that they were sawn asunder, right? Not every one of them was delivered in such a way that they didn't experience death. But it says that they never stopped believing. Some wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But they all obtained a good report through faith, even though they hadn't received the promise. They were still looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. That all of those things that, that happened that were that God's providentially allowed, whether it was to Israel or Judah or his people in any other place were such things that would witness his faithfulness. And even if it meant the giving of our life as a result of that, they would stand fast.
in the next chapter in Hebrews chapter 12, because we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us or entangle us. Are we like Daniel going to choose to believe the Lord, to trust in him completely and wholly? Or am I going to be beset and entangled with those things that around me, with the circumstances, with the, the hardships, with whatever it may be? Daniel, probably more than you or I, had reason to despair because he's been thrown into a den of lions. The power of faith, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say it this way: the power of faith is God's faithfulness. And what I mean by that is that we're not somehow opening some magical box by trusting in the Lord. God is not a genie, and we by faith, rub the lamp, and, and out comes what is necessary for us, or what we desire, or what we hope for, or what we would like to see come to pass, or, or even if it's purely motivated, I, I believe, and so therefore, God's will will be accomplished. The power of faith is rooted in God's faithfulness. All of these who were there that we just read about in Hebrews chapter 11 were looking forward to and expecting. They trusted in the faithfulness of God, that he would deliver his people, that he would protect him, that he would bring about the promised Messiah, that all of those things looking forward to. Now, we on the other side are looking back on and we have the full assurance of faith. We see the faithfulness of God in that, and it is a witness and a testimony to you and I that we can trust. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus is uh, Jesus is, let's see, I think he's just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Yes. And as they come down, there is a man there, and his son is demon-possessed says in verse 15 of Matthew 17 that he is a lunatic, sore vexed. He's oftentimes fallen into the fire and often to the water. And they, they try to rebuke the devil that's, that's in him, and, and they can't do it. And Jesus, Jesus uh, rebukes them a little bit in verse 17. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. He rebukes him. He says, a faithless generation. Uh, Jesus rebukes the devil, and he departs out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And later, the, when they get aside and there's nobody around, the disciples ask Jesus, why could we not cast him out? And, and there's, there's more than one reason here. I mean, don't, don't, there's, there's more than one reason here. Uh, but Jesus responded, and, and this is what he said, and this is, this is because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you shall see, say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. 
And he continues, and this, this is why I say there's other reasons. Howbeit, this kind goes out not by out not, but by prayer and fasting. Okay. But what I want to address here is Jesus' response in verse 20: because of your unbelief. It isn't that they, the power of faith is God's faithfulness. So there is a doubt within them of his ability. We've already covered that God is able. There's a doubt in them of his willingness, of his faithfulness, of his desire to deliver We've already established that God desires, 1 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all men would be saved. Whatever their doubt may have been, he says, because of your unbelief. And then he gives an illustration. It doesn't literally mean that if we have faith, we can say to the mountain, remove, and it'll go to the sea. What he's saying is that with with a little bit of faith, with the faith as a grain of a mustard seed, which is a very tiny little seed, with a small amount of faith, just a little bit amount of faith, we can accomplish great things, which is simplistic in its, in its statement, but that's what he's saying. Because of your unbelief. They doubted God's goodness, faithfulness, ability they began to think about God the same way that the world would pitch him today in a Marvel movie. There's a consequence to those who would make, who would persecute the people of God. And we read about this in, in verse 25 through 27 as we get to the, well, we read about it before then, but in verse 24, the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast him in the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions had the mastery of them and break all their bones in pieces or ever they came to the bottom of the den. They reaped what they had sown. They'd reaped what they'd sown. Continues on though. Right here is Daniel and he is, a, he is standing as a representative, as an ambassador for the living God in a world, in a pagan culture who interprets him as just one God among many. We live in a similar culture who would say that this is one God among many, or he doesn't exist, or whatever the case may be, but they don't believe in God like we would believe in God. And God, in his providence, allows all of this to happen so that he may show himself strong on Daniel's behalf. So that through the faith of Daniel and that his trust in him, others may see the faithfulness of God. And that's exactly what has happened here. As we conclude this chapter, as we look at what's going on here, we see that God receives the glory for everything that's happened to Daniel. 
And don't miss that. God receives the glory for everything that's happened to Daniel. For the persecution, for the being thrown into the lion's den, for all of that, he receives the glory. Why? Because he was faithful. Because as Daniel trusted in him and, and knowing that the power of the faith that he had was in God's faithfulness, was that God was going to be faithful. King Darius wrote, verse 25, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all, in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed in his dominion, shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who has de delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Well, it may not be a, necessarily a proclamation of faith, a confession of faith by Darius, and or maybe it is. It certainly is a proclamation of the glory of God and of his goodness. That God in his sovereignty would make himself known to a lost and dying world around him through his people, including their hardship, and that their faith would be part of a key witness to the world around them, still applies today. Our motivation for you and I isn't to, quote unquote, see the hand of God. It turns me to Matthew chapter 16. We're, we're nearly done. Matthew chapter 16. Our motivation isn't to see the hand of God. That isn't why we trust in him. As I said, he's not a genie. We're not somehow receiving uh, special merit or favor because we've seen God do some miracle on our behalf. He accomplishes those miracles. He does those things so that he might receive the glory, so that he may be made known. Even our good works we read in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 are, are those things that he has called us to that he might be made known. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him that they would show him a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, when, is it, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And Jesus' condemnation is, he says, this is a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Which wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And then he says, and a, there shall no sign be given unto you, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Sign of the prophet Jonas, right? Just as Jonas was in the belly of the well three days, Jesus would be in the tomb three days and then resurrected. He says, that, there's your sign. That he would die, that he would be brought back from the dead. Our motivation isn't to see the hand of God, to somehow witness a miracle, to somehow be part of that. And there are those who run around pursuing that, looking for that direct, as they perceive a direct interaction, because that is somehow nearness and closeness with God. 
And unless they're seeing it, they're not believing it. We get right down to it. It's a faithless pursuit of God. But for you and I, our motivation in, in believing, in seeing, in trusting in God is to make him known in the world around us. As I said, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus would himself say in the Sermon on the Mount that we are, we are lights uh, to the world around us. And that the city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. That the faith that we have, we let our light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God, your Father which is in heaven. Just as faith is the evidence of things that is not seen to the world around us, to Daniel, to Darius, here is the faith of Daniel who would trust in him, even though he's faced with certain death, unwilling to deny him. That faith was a witness, was an evidence of a God that he had never seen. And the same with our faith. Jesus, as he's leaving this world, physically leaving this world, says to you and I in Matthew chapter 28, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The motivation that we have for operating in faith and trust is seeing God made known to the world around us for his glory. Not for our confirmation, not for our comfort, not for our peace, not for our desire, for his glory, for his will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that we have the opportunity to look at the, the faith of Daniel and how unquestioningly and unwaveringly he trusted in you despite impossible circumstances. And God, how we see that in that story, uh, that account, that, that thing that happened, Lord, that you were faithful to him, just as God, you have proven faithful to all of us. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And I, God, pray that we would know with certainty that if you are for us, who can be against us? And with that certainty, uh, that assurance, Lord, that we can stand firm, that we can trust, that we can stand in such a way in faith that, Lord, you would be witness to those around us. I thank you, Lord, for the example of those who have gone before who have walked and operated in faith. Demonstrating for us over and over and over abundantly, Lord, your faithfulness. We praise you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the fulfillment and the completion of all that has been promised in and through him. God, that he is able to save us to the uttermost, that he is able to preserve us to the uttermost. 
God, may we not stand in shame, but may we be bold in the presentation of that truth. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.